chocolate. 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 From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. About four years ago, I had it in my head that I'd become a chocolate maker. I did a series of chocolate-related internships abroad. I invested in small batch equipment and set about perfecting my craft. At the time, I had no concept of how to work in the craft chocolate industry without being a chocolate maker, at least initially. So I set up shop in my parents' living room. I was in the middle of stage three in the evolution towards becoming a professional chocolate maker the previous two stages being discovery and obsession. But not everyone's story involves a leap of faith into professional chocolate making. Some move on to other parts of the industry, like myself, while others are exactly where they want to be. But without that relatively new ability to make chocolate in tiny batches, the vast majority of the world's craft chocolate brands simply wouldn't exist. Many well-known brands still operate from home, in fact, And one man has played a huge role in making that possible, John Nancy of Chocolate Alchemy. You may recognize John from the internet episode back in January. All of us talked about it. Our ideas outstripped the hardware at the time. Once it started really expanding, it got very excited. John's company and related chocolate making resources have made it possible for thousands of people to start making chocolate at home over the last decade and a half. And this momentum shows no signs of slowing. In fact, it's now growing faster than ever. If you were to Google bread recipe or quiche recipe, a bunch of sites would appear with step-by-step instructions on how to bake a loaf of bread or how to put together a quiche. It's not so with chocolate. If you Google chocolate recipe, you'll get a list of step-by-step instructions on how to use chocolate in a recipe. Because up until just over a decade ago, quite frankly, it seemed ludicrous to think you could make chocolate just as you would brownies or cookies. It was an ingredient. It was too complicated to dream of preparing it at home. But John saw from the start that that simply wasn't the case. What it takes to make chocolate. Roast the beans, crack and winnow them, refine them. You take your cocoa beans, you have to roast them. That drives off moisture, develops a whole bunch of flavors, um, and makes them safe because uh, raw beans can be E. coli contaminated. One of the reasons I don't like raw chocolate, but anyway, uh, so you have to roast them. You then got to get the external shell off of them, and you do that with a process called cracking and winnowing, which just means blowing the husk away. After that, it really is just a matter of then mixing the recipe ingredients. And chocolate is no more than those roasted cocoa nibs and sugar refined down. So ground down into a, um, it's a really, really smooth product. That's what you identify as chocolate. What's your general reaction when you hear someone tell you that they want to get into home chocolate making? Well, the first is, I, you know, the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, good. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm glad you do. It then immediately shifts to whether they're asking me how to do it, uh, whether they're actually soliciting advice, or they're just sharing. 
So that's the first thing. I don't want to foster off knowledge they don't want. And then uh, depending on the situation, and it's all situational, finding out what they actually mean by chocolate making. In many cases, if they actually don't know the bean to bar movement, when you say, you know, do you make chocolate or do you want to learn how to make chocolate? I've run across this a lot is all they're talking about is remelting and tempering or making something with chocolate. If you were to dig a little bit further into those Google search results, you'd likely start finding chocolate truffle recipes, which still isn't making chocolate, but making chocolates. If you'd said you were a home chocolate maker, that's still the final product that most people would think of. But around the world, this is slowly, very slowly changing, one order at a time. Chocolate Alchemy splits pretty much right down the center. Um, half my business is retail, half my business is wholesale. And, but, and that's monetarily, but as far as number of customers, I, I just happen to have this metric that just jumped out at me from my QuickBooks. We just hit something like 6,500 retail customers. That's a lot of people just making it at home. They order, you know, every couple months. And they, they make a couple batches of chocolate. They don't do it every week. And they share it with friends. And that's it. There's lots of people who are into it just to do it occasionally. Absolutely. And those makers share that chocolate with their friends and family. In turn, some of those first tasters become the first customers of a new chocolate business. And new chocolate makers seem to be popping up by the dozens each week around the world many looking to go full-time. This can seem incredibly intimidating for someone thinking they're breaking into that market. But I asked John about the role of local chocolate makers in a capacity similar to local coffee roasters, just a few in each city. The internet market is, yeah, it might well be getting a little saturated. It's just because we're all so connected and you see all the intense competition. But that said, every town could have a couple chocolate makers doing it locally and thriving just fine that actually you, you what you're actually describing is not an insignificant portion of my wholesale clientele they're they're, they're just that i've i've had many uh interviews where people toss out that that there's like 200 professional bean to bar businesses and i'm like no Absolutely not. That is way too low of a number because all I have to do is go look at my wholesale list of customers and it's 1,500. And the, the, their response is, well, they, they're not on the internet. They, they, I have no proof of that. I'm like, well, they're not on the internet. Not everybody is. Uh, doesn't mean they don't exist. They, they stay local. And so there's lots of local that don't come up on the radar. There's tons of room for that. Look at coffee. Look at home, uh, coffee roasting. You, you, you could stand in Seattle and stand on one block, and I've done this, and see five Starbucks from one location. Uh, there's plenty of room. They just have to pick their their market. Um, and I think you're right on the target there of they just got to keep it local. That's what I suggest to people when they ask about that. So is why do you want to get into this? And what are you thinking about market? And um, what's going to make you stand out? And sometimes being the big fish in the small pond is the way to do it.
Chocolate Alchemy may seem like a one-man show at first glance, but John's certainly not alone behind the scenes. One of the people who's been working with John is Mackenzie Rivers, founder and chocolate maker at Map Chocolate. Since 2014, she's been making chocolate at the same time as she's been packing up boxes of cacao. From watching John over the years and from your own experiences in your own home, you've definitely had a, a glimpse into the lives of many people who are making chocolate at home all over the world. Yeah, everybody. I mean, it's amazing. I can remember leaving a note in Yoon Kim's, a box of beans she was buying because I recognized her from Instagram and said like, hello, like I've met lots of people because I put notes in their boxes of beans that I was literally <laughs> packing up and shipping to them. <laughs> hello, or I'll draw That's things. so funny. Yeah, like um, Potomac Chocolate bought something recently and I like drew like a fish on their invoice like because I know their packaging oh. has fish on it they're probably thinking who is this person that, you know that does these notes and crazy things pictures on their invoices but um yeah so I and I do and I've seen that's the other thing is there are so many makers Instagram is a tiny tiny window into how many people are out there making their own chocolate, a tiny window. And people think of it as it is the whole world of craft chocolate is who's on Instagram and what they're doing. It's a tiny window. And, um, and you know, that's one thing that John said to me early on, we were having a, a conversation and I was like, how, you know, how will people find me? Like how will I'm making chocolate? How will people buy the bars? And he said, how many people are in the world? I was like, I don't know, like a lot. <laughs> and um, he's like, there are a lot of people in the world who haven't heard of you yet, but they're out there. And he was right. I mean, there are people all over. So um, there's that. And there's also, there's a lot of makers out there. A lot of makers. I mean, his business has, you know, He's had like last year was like a record breaking year. And then this year, I assume it's on the same trajectory because he's super busy. And those are all people. Majority of them are people making chocolate at home or on some small capacity. Well, John has never sold any chocolate. Mackenzie has. And she's played this behind the scenes role in helping others grow their businesses as well. I find her perspective incredibly unique in part because she entirely skipped the first two stages of becoming a professional chocolate maker. In fact, she spent the first couple of years of her career lingering between home chocolate making and professional chocolate making, a very common gray area. Were you making chocolate before you were searching out a bunch of bars? Which, which one came first? Well, I was making chocolate before. I mean, I came into chocolate in a weird way. I wasn't online. I wasn't in a chat group. I wasn't, I don't, I don't know how other people start making chocolate. May, you know, I really, nowadays, I think a lot of people, they see it in a store or, you know, they, they're online and they hear about it or they're on Instagram and they see it and they think, oh, I want to do that. But in 2014, I wasn't even on Instagram. And I don't think there was the community of craft chocolate on Instagram then that there is today. And um, I certainly couldn't walk in any store in my town and, and see it. And so, I mean, I found it, 
I found making chocolate through John at Chocolate Alchemy, who didn't tell me he had anything to do with chocolate when he invited me to come out and see what he was doing. <laughs> come out and see what I do. He didn't tell me it was, I, you know, I sell chocolate making equipment and cocoa beans. I thought he was in coffee. I thought he had something to do with coffee, which he does and did at the time. That's like the other side of John that nobody really talks about. He is involved in coffee. So it was a complete shock. And um, even when he said, you know, here, take this stuff home and make some chocolate, I still didn't really have a, a clue. I only had an inkling. I mean, I was, it would be like if you never heard of baking bread and somebody said, here, I'm going to give you this sourdough starter and these are the instructions and you're going to go home and do it. You'd be like, okay. But you really couldn't conceive of what it was. So I started making craft chocolate or bean to bar chocolate before I ever tasted any. I mean, the first bean to bar chocolate I ever tasted was my own. And I'm sure it was really bad. <laughs> but I thought it was so exciting, so amazing that I, you know, wanted to keep doing it instantly. It wasn't until six months into her chocolate making journey that Mackenzie even set foot into a craft chocolate shop. This was her reaction upon walking into the meadow, a fine chocolate shop in Portland, Oregon beautiful flowers in the middle and it's really warm and inviting in this giant wall of craft chocolate and it's very it's very portland and hip and fun and so to walk in and just see all these chocolate bars it was it was so exciting it was wonderful and exciting but even before walking into the meadow with their huge selection of bars mackenzie was already making chocolate with inclusions meaning chocolate with additional flavors she hadn't yet garnered a reputation for it, but I'd argue that she was on her way. When did you decide that, okay, this is now map chocolate? Like I'm building from home chocolate making into this business and this brand. Was that sort of immediately after you went to the meadow, before you went to the meadow? Where on the timeline was map born? Well, it definitely wasn't when I went to the meadow. I mean, when I went to the meadow, I was... I was already making inclusion bars, but nobody was buying my bars. You know, I mean, you can scroll back through Instagram and like you have your initial post, like one, one person likes them. I mean, there's a few of the early people, they are finding the new makers. And so they like the post and that is so encouraging, right? You're like, Someone liked it. But, um, you know, I made bars way back then that nobody ever bought. Nobody ever got to eat that literally got, well, that my friends got to eat them. <laughs> My family and friends, right? But nobody else because, you know, how are they going to find you to buy it? But I wasn't thinking at the time that I'm going to be this inclusion maker. I was making the bars I wanted to make. I was making the bars that I thought sounded good. And number one, I was making the bars that I wasn't finding when I was looking at craft chocolate. That is exactly how you build a successful business. Make the product you want to see in the world and you'll have at least one customer. And there's no need to move beyond that one customer if you don't want to. Thousands of people are making chocolate at home each week, well beyond the customers only John is serving. But there are pros and cons to making chocolate at home, a balance I and many others can certainly attest to. Now that you've been able to not just talk to other chocolate makers, but make chocolate at home yourself and then transition to being a professional, I don't know what that means anymore, but a professional yeah. chocolate maker. What are the 
extremes of home chocolate making, like the really big benefits and the really big drawbacks? Well, I mean, I think often it's the, it's trying to use a space for dual purposes. I mean, you're going to have to use your kitchen, but then it is your kitchen, right? And so I think trying to keep everything separate, having to pack things up, clean them up, move them away. Let's say you're trying to temper, you know, 40 bars, you've got to put them somewhere. It's all that sort of thing. I mean, I think there are people who do it well and do it at home and they're super organized about it. And that's really how you have to be. And given whatever the cottage food laws are in your state, you know, we have all that that they have to abide by. But um, a quick interlude on the idea of a home chocolate factory. It's okay to be small. It is absolutely 100% okay to be like, oh, it's just me and my chocolate's on my washing machine in my laundry room. Don't try to hide and pretend like you're a factory. I mean, we have factory chocolate. That's fine. But it's okay to be tiny because some of the world's most incredible chocolate makers, people whose chocolate I've tasted that for me is like, unbelievable. They're not factories. They're just one person making chocolate. Or maybe they have, you know, their husband or boyfriend or wife or whoever helping them on the weekends. So it's okay to be small. I think that's, I think that's the next wave of chocolate. There's going to be some makers getting bigger and bigger and come see our giant new million dollar conch. And then there's other makers who are going to be stepping into the spotlight that are tiny. I mean, I've never had any person who's bought my chocolate said, I would really love this, except for the fact that you're such a, a small business, that you're so tiny. I would love this, except that you're not a factory. Like nobody has ever said that. This goes for both home chocolate makers and professionals. Whether you agree or not, it's important to remember that your words and how you categorize what you're doing have an impact, no matter how you choose to use them. But returning to the drawbacks of making chocolate at home. I think the other, like a drawback too is, it's like any job where you work out of home, you're home and it's easy to go, oh, I need to do the laundry. I need to do this. I need to do that. And your time can be pulled away from you even when you don't want it to be. So I think when you walk into a, a place that you're paying money to rent or to buy, let's say you own it, you buy a workshop or something, then there's like this push, like you're there to work. You're there nine to five or five to five or whatever your hours are and um, to get the work done. And then you have all that extra room to get it, you know, to get everything done. And I think, I think it's just the size is probably the limiting thing at home. But then the flip side is your home and you can, you know, um, you can work on things, you know, you can have your grinders running. You don't ever have to worry. Like, is everything fine? Because <clears throat> you're right there. You know what's happening with your chocolate all the time. That's probably uh, the biggest positive aspect of it. And I'm talking about this from the standpoint of a business. If you're making chocolate at home, like I think everyone should make chocolate at home. Like if you like to make bread or bake or make your own ice cream, like chocolate making should be added to, to that because it's fun 
and it's easy. And if you have kids, they can do it. Your friends can do it. You can have parties around it. You can give people their Christmas gifts or whatever because you make chocolate. And so I think a lot of people are are starting to figure that out, you know. And the grinders, especially like the premieres, they're not expensive. And um, you can just have your own, you know, little chocolate making thing going. For those of you now convinced that you need to start making chocolate at home, there are some relatively affordable starter options these days. If someone is looking to get into it, I, I recommend Baby Steps first and foremost. And so if you don't mind me going along that route, uh, what they need is a refiner or uh, what's often called a melanger. It, it's, a, it's a grinder. It's a bowl with a granite bottom. And inside it are set a pair of granite wheels that are locked down under pressure. The bowl rotates. It causes the granite wheels to also rotate against the bottom plate of granite. And that refines down the nibs and the sugar into chocolate. Mackenzie also referenced something called a Premier, which is actually a large spice grinder. It's the same machine I started on, actually, and it costs around 250 US dollars. That was the main ingredient of my chocolate making workshop, and it still should be, according to the experts. If you're going to get into it, what I recommend is you get a grinder, a refiner, um, and buy roasted nibs somewhere. I'm, I'm going to, of course, suggest you get them from me. Um, I've got 30 odd varieties. They're all suited explicitly for chocolate making. And I give you a bunch of tasting notes so you can pick out the one you think you might like. And I roast them all according to be suitable for chocolate making. I, I've run against eh, a few times a month people who buy random cocoa nibs from somewhere that are roasted and don't like the chocolate they make because that's maybe not what they were meant for. After that, step the process backwards a little at a time. Maybe next time, go ahead and get roasted beans and something that will crack them and winnow them. Since you started in 2003, has the available and the popular equipment changed at all over the years? It has, Yes, it has. It's pretty much, what, gone through the roof. I mean, the entire intent of Chocolate Alchemy was to bring equipment to the market that you could use. None of it existed for that purpose when I started. I back and engineered basically everything. It, it wasn't known. You could use the champion juicer. I worked that out. The roaster didn't exist in 2002. I fumbled a lot with ovens, which is why I can say it's really hard to get it right. There were no winnowers, uh, or the winnowers you had were thousands of dollars and hard to come by. There was no melanges at the time. Again, that was something I, I discovered by finding a Indian wet grinder, modifying it, get, talking to the company to make these modifications for me so it would be suitable, suitable for chocolate, and then making those available. And so the more the industry's grown, uh, the more equipment that's come about. There's now larger winnowers. Um, I, I sell a couple myself. Uh, the melangers went from these little two or three kilogram, you know, uh, six to 10 pound refiners, melangers, up to ones that now hold 100 pounds, 150 pounds. And there's uh, currently 
three different manufacturers doing that. Uh, so that's gone exceedingly well. Uh, and roasters, there's roasters are actually still the hardest one. There's the Beemore, uh, and then there's no middle road, which which I'm hoping to work on in the next year or so. But you have to jump to large professional coffee roasters to make a really big jump. Or people use convection ovens, which, again, are fraught with reproducibility issues. Doable. Lots of great chocolate out there made by them, but there's hurdles there. Uh, but just saying, yes, new equipment's coming out all the time. And, you know, to that end, people are discovering what the industries use often. Uh, different types of ball refiners are starting to come on the market. Larger ones, conches, which separate the process, which you'll notice I didn't mention on the home uh, making side. It's not really needed. Um, it's a sort of a nebulous process that just on a really small scale takes care of itself in the refiner. What it takes to make chocolate. Roast the beans, crack and winnow them, refine them. Um, so yeah, it's been an explosion with equipment availability and uh, variation. And it's been wonderful. It's great to see that. As equipment gets more specialized, you approach more of the traditional factory-style chocolate manufacturing setup. Each detail is precisely controlled. But chocolate manufacturers do this to produce a cheaper, more consistent product. There are other reasons why you might want to expand your equipment arsenal, even as just a hobbyist chocolate maker. I'm going to go back to my own clientele. You know, they go from a small winnower uh, my the the name I've given mine is a sylph up to a larger one that's an ether. The sylph you have to hand feed after cracking. The ether you load a, a hopper with fifty pounds of roasted beans and they crack and winnow all in one shot without you attending them. And then they go into the melanger of just a different scale. So it it all looks about the same. And I've got many many a business customer that. That's what they look like, and they're they're doing huge amounts of business, you know, well into solid seven figures, and they have a bank of melangers, and it works for them. And it's it, part of it's a philosophy difference too. They don't want to go any larger. They're happy where they are, so their goal isn't more, 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 more. It's why did I get into this? I got into this because often, you know, I enjoy the process. I enjoy the results of these small bits. I didn't get into it for the money. And so that helps steer their their equipment choices. So that's a large portion of it. Uh, that jump, I can't think of a lot who've made that jump. I've, I've thought of, I've actually seen more that start to make the jump, make the realization, this isn't why I got into it, and take a step backwards, actually, to where they were happier. So philosophy difference and remembering why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, have you found that that why behind the business has changed at all? Because it seems like at the beginning it was much more people interested in how stuff works and making something themselves, and now it's definitely a lot more about like, where the cacao comes from. Um, it's, a, it's a blend. It's a little of everything. Uh, for me, with the very privileged a view of watching it change, I'd say it actually hasn't changed. What's changed is that 
people's awareness of all those conversations is getting greater. From the beginning, I mean, I've always talked about origin, even, you know, individual crops and the farmers um, or the co-ops and the producers. And that that still resonates. So I'd say the conversation I'm going to submit, it hasn't changed that much, just more because more people are talking about it. It seems like it's changed more of that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, at least that's my take on it. Um, yeah, I'm here for your take on it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to you know, gather the thoughts there. Um, you know, to the, to that end, though, um, and this is going to be, it sounds kind of interesting, and I'm I'm not quite parroting. I'm, I'm giving sort of a, a conversation I overheard at the last conference where I'm going to, again, submit that origin story and farmers and all of that and this is going to at first sound a little sacrilegious we're moving away from that conversation i'm finding and to me at first glance that might sound terrible but i'm actually going to say it's great because it's becoming a given that of course you are treating the farmers right of course you're paying proper premiums um and that's just becoming the norm. And that is fantastic. And so, you know, not to dismiss it, but if, again, if you're into it for that reason, everybody's got a story. You know, everybody's got a great one. But what that means to John Q. Public is it all looks the same kind of. Yeah, yep, yep. Those are great. Those are wonderful. And it's true. It is wonderful. But it means the chocolate has to start standing on its own merit for what it is. Um, just because the new norm is, wow, decency. What a wonderful concept. And I, I mean that sincerely. So I think where we're going to move into is almost what the industry already has always been about, um, is the consumer enjoying the chocolate for what it is, just knowing even now better that they're well-educated about the the new wave of chocolate makers out there. In case you hadn't heard of Chocolate Alchemy before this podcast episode, you should know that part of the reason John's become the go-to for thousands of chocolate makers is thanks to over a decade and a half of home chocolate making experiments. How Chocolate Alchemy came to be is actually detailed in episode 2 of this very podcast. But over the course of its history, John has answered hundreds of questions, and I for one have always wanted to know what's my most entertaining or favorite question there is one i just did so it's fresh in my head and the the paraphrased question of was was kind of why does chocolate seize when you add water because um, everybody knows it does and it was exciting for me because i didn't know the answer off the top of my head and i had to pull out my chemistry knowledge and it took me quite a bit of thinking and reading and writing. Um, probably took me three weeks on and off to get the article written so that it it didn't shut down and make people go glassy-eyed who didn't understand chemistry. Trying to bring it approachable to, to, to explain why this happens and why you can't mix in sugar syrup 
to chocolate and 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 have a behavior problem. So I got a real thrill out of that. Really getting an understanding of something that everybody knows happens. And those are, those are usually the ones. I, I love people not trying to stump me, but asking me something I don't know that makes me delve into it and reevaluate what I previously thought or didn't know or shake up my own ideas. I have the greatest admiration for chocolate makers because I actually couldn't do it for a living. These Ask the Alchemist experiments are just a small portion of what John does. In addition to the website and bean and equipment sales, John also has a YouTube channel and an upcoming podcast, as well as Instagram and an ever-expanding email inbox. But one thing he's never really addressed is... After you've determined the answer, who ends up eating all the experiments? Oh, um, my daughter went to a Waldorf school for 10 years. And somehow I fell into teaching in their science block of the eighth grade class, that's their highest class, I taught them how to make chocolate. Um, from a science perspective, we talked tempering, crystallization, and just different parts of that. And in most of the years, they always had to do a fundraiser to, to raise money to go on a, a final class trip. And most of the time, they made truffles, which I donated all of that chocolate I had. We combined it and turned it into truffle filling and coating. And so my answer is I usually donate all that to that local school for fundraising. For anyone who still wants to get into home chocolate making after learning all of this, do you have any final advice? Uh, yes, I do. Um, don't expect to get it right the first time. Expect to fail. And know that that is 100% okay. You're not going to hit it out of the ballpark on the first hit. You can make some really great stuff right from the get-go. But it's a big, long, complicated process with a lot of nuance. So I, I, on one side, I said it's not that bad. And it's not. You can make good chocolate. But expect to fail. Everybody fails when they make stuff. So don't take it as a personal failure. Take it as a learning experience. <laughs> I can't describe to people how much I failed. And, and those are some of my best learning experiences. And failure is inevitable. That's why he calls his chocolate making experiments rather than systems or controlled executions. And as Mackenzie and John have been trying to make clear throughout this episode, home chocolate making doesn't have to be a stepping stone for world chocolate domination. I think if people want to make a business, they don't have to they don't have to be on the store shelves. Like they don't have to be like, well, I'm gonna send it to New York or somewhere and be in the shop. You could have a business in your own town. I mean, there are lots of makers that just sell locally, just sell through their family friends and have their fans who want to buy their chocolate every month. That's fine. If you don't want to have a business, you can still make chocolate and have fun with it, enjoy it and give it away or do whatever. You can make tiny batches. I mean, John is the one who made that possible, right? Like you can buy a pound of beans or nibs from him. I wouldn't really recommend making a batch of chocolate from one pound. <laughs> you need a little bit more in the grinder than that, but 
you can still, you don't have to have a huge outlay of money to make chocolate at home and have fun with it. I mean, for, I think like teachers, what a great way to teach kids at school, whether they're from, you know, kindergarten on up through chocolate making. And like, to me, that's like an extension of making it at home. It's a way of making it on a small scale that's good. There is an incredible diversity of roles for chocolate making. In daily life, as part of a routine in the classroom, and hopefully somewhere in your neighborhood, there is chocolate making. The large chocolate factory model is now able to happen at a small scale, and it can happen wherever there's space and access to electricity. And generally, there's much more care taken to sourcing and craft than to appearance and consumer perception. Much like YouTube and Google have given small creators the ability to make the products they want to consume, people like John are bringing small-scale food production into reality. These global themes of eating locally sourced, healthier, and home-style foods are both feeding the growth of and reflected within the home chocolate-making movement. And looking beyond North America and Europe, where most chocolate is made, the availability of small-scale equipment helps cacao farmers as well. If a cacao co-op invests in a small chocolate refiner, they can jerry-rig the roasting of their beans, peel off the shells by hand, and refine their beans into chocolate. This gives them a taste of the quality of that harvest of cacao. And when combined with education, it can lead to improved cacao quality the world over. In some cases, it may even lead to a chocolate-making business at origin. But without this relatively affordable equipment and home chocolate-making techniques, such a venture would be near impossible. So next time you bite into a bar of chocolate, remember that you could do that too. And you could do it your way. At home or on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, and share it in any way you see fit. Your support means so much, so it really keeps me going and motivated, and able to interview a range of amazing guests. An especially huge thank you to Mackenzie and John, and everyone else behind the scenes at both Map Chocolate and Chocolate Alchemy. To learn more about our guests, check out the show notes of this episode and the link in the description, or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm -hmm.